yeah, having my head shoved into the uh, steps of the Ulster Bank in Ranelagh, cold butt of a gun put into the back of your skull. That's a moment where you go, okay, yeah, I think this one's up. How does a high-flying academic become one of Ireland's most prolific bank robbers? What I would see is the most important part of this still lies open. I'm not here to hurt you. A brand new series from the award-winning team behind the Indo Daily. That November day, that's where it all, all begins. Out now, wherever you get your podcasts. Shachtan, an Indo Askeliga. Time imon irok the yen of chacht erachor. Agus suligam a makan sha gurfeder erachor inuik kiart len of winter fein. Skilti fis turmi. Tashe dochrecha nach vetoch ara igornamyan on kestchen ekol. Vien talam aginam griv arkar nrachtum. Find us on all the usual podcast platforms. The Big Tech Podcast, in proud association with Magnet Networks, connecting businesses virtually anywhere in Ireland. Hello and you're welcome to The Big Tech Show with me, Adrian Wackley, the tech editor of the Irish and Sunny Independent. And this week, it's all about the National Broadband Plan. I'm delighted to say that we've got Peter Hendrick, the chief executive of National Broadband Ireland, which is the entity which is now the preferred bidder for the state's 2 billion or 3 billion, depending how you calculate the costs, National Broadband Plan. Before we get into that, a word uh, of thanks to our sponsor, Magnet Networks, which is sponsoring uh, The Big Tech Podcast Uh, at the moment and Magnet connects business virtually anywhere in Ireland. So we thank Magnet for their support. Peter Hendrick, you're very welcome to the studio. Hi Adrian, delighted to be here this morning. So an awful lot has been written and said about this. I've been following it since day one in 2012. I was there when Pat Rabbit uh, announced it first. Uh, Let's talk about the here and now and what has been agreed and where we're going from here. This network, leave aside the cost for a second, we're talking about a five to seven year rollout. Is that roughly right? Yeah, I think I think to be fair, you know what what was announced yesterday was about bringing high speed broadband to the last remaining homes in the country that don't have high speed broadband. And today. Do you mean the five hundred forty? The five hundred forty thousand okay. premises, and, and and that's a mixture of uh, homes, businesses, mm. farms, schools. Uh, and so those homes today have less than 30 megabits per second. Mm. And the definition of high-speed broadband, when when the National Broadband Programme began was 30 megabits per second. We know it's moved on from that. And certainly the product that we will look to launch next year, at the end of this year, will be 150 megabits per second. So That's our, going to be the basic that's, product. That's that, our basic for example, m- a home minim- minimum product for, for a home or a business. Now, they will equally have the opportunity to, to purchase up to a gigabit per second. Mm. So minimum product, 150 meg, but the option of choosing to go to one gigabit per second if they need to. Right. Now, obviously, the rollout is going to take some time and we're talking about full fibre coverage. We're talking about 100% fibre. The aim is 100% fibre to every premise, those 540,000 premises. That is going to take some time to do. So in terms of the rollout schedule, we, we've looked at how do we deliver what we call digital hubs, okay? Just, uh, can I just stop yes. you there? We'll, we'll go through all of this, mm. but let's just look at the first steps. So I think 
you, you might correct me here, but I think in the, f- first of all, when will we see the first premises, homes or businesses connected? I think the, it, if I, it would be fair to say the first half of next year, you'll start seeing the first premises. Okay. And, that, and that's, and the reason why I say first half, it is dependent on when we get the contract signed. There's a bit of work we've got to do okay. in terms of concluding the contract. So I would say in the first half of next year, you will start to see premises connected. Mm-hmm. And I can describe in a bit more detail the timeline of those premises. Um, we start out with doing these digital hubs, mm-hmm. broadband community points, of which we're looking at 296 broadband community points across the entire country. So every county within the first year will have a number of broadband community points, typically between 10 and 14 per A community point is like a library. It's a library, it's a school, School. it can be a community hall, it can be be a GAA um, building. It's a place where people can go and access broadband. Geographically uh, distributed? Ge- geographically distributed. And, and these premises have been designated by the broadband officers in each county. Right. So, you know, there's been a lot of consideration as to where is the best place to put these um, mm-hmm. broadband community points where people can go on hot desk. They have access to free Wi-Fi. They can, they can, it's, a, it's, a, it's an, an element of remote working mm-hmm. within, their, within their communities and regions. And that's being done as a priority, is it? That's been done as a step? priority in year one. Right. And, 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 the, and the reasoning for that is, obviously, we want to get out as quickly as possible mm-hmm. and bring fiber to, out to every user. Mm-hmm. So within, within the first and second year, we start deploying across the entire country. So the end of year two, we're building full fiber in every county. Year two being year two uh, from when the contract from when is the contract signed. is signed. So so day day one is the, is the date of signing contract. From from day one, we have clear milestones and deliverables within the contract that we have to pass and deliver mm. before we ever receive any milestone payments, uh, subsidy payments mm. from the state. Okay, so the first couple of premises have been connected. Can you? Give me a clearer idea then, from then on, uh, what the rollout time frame is in terms like uh, people, there's 100,000 per year or 70,000 per year. How does, how does it pan out? So in the first two years, we will have passed 130,000 homes. Right. And, and the definition of passing is that we have to be within a certain distance, typically four pole lengths. Mm-hmm. So between each pole, it's 40 meters. We have to be within four pole lengths, a scenario where we can connect the customer within 10 working days of receiving an order. Okay. So we can't designate a home as being passed if we can't connect within 10 working days. Mm-hmm. So there's clear criteria in terms of passing. So the first two years, 130,000 homes. For every year thereafter, it ranges between 70 and 100,000 homes passed. Mm-hmm. Now, we've estimated that the overall build is between five and seven years. Mm-hmm. There is some flexibility around Obviously, we, we, we could find we have winters where there's extreme weather. There's certain circumstances that might drive those timelines out between that five and seven year window that we have to account for. We, we're, we're just not sure. Obviously, we can't see or predict how the weather and, and, and uh, unforeseen circumstances impact the rollout schedule. Okay. Why does it take seven years to get to the last premises? Up to now, we've been more or less guided that uh, a complete broadband rollout would take three to five years, the last remaining premises and the five years. Is that because the nature of the build or the technical spec of the build has moved on? Or No, I, I think if, if you look at the schedule, I mean, there's a, there's a make-ready program that has to be undertaken. So part of our program in terms of starting with is to make sure that the infrastructure we're using, the poles and ducts, 
is is repaired and, and fit for purpose. So there's a design activity, a make ready activity, and then there's the passing of homes activity. Mm-hmm. So if, if you look at that across, and if you consider it, every single county, we're going to have 1,500 contractors out there building this network. It takes time. In every county? In, in every, across every county, we have 1,500 contractors building this network. You mean across the network. country? Across the country. Right. Across the country. So, Second sorry, not every county, across the country, 1,500 1500 contractors yeah. across the country building out this network. It just takes, it takes time. Um, we're looking at, we're, we're looking at 100, over 106,000 kilometers of, of road length and 146,000 kilometers of actual fiber cable. Mm. It's mm. quite a significant project. Yeah, it is indeed. Um, can I just ask you about uh, the infrastructure using a lot of or most of the infrastructure will actually be airs, as in telephone poles, for example. Um, does this mean that the uh, the any impasse that has been there with there that you've worked through this, that you now have a good working relationship and that's more or less uh, you're ready to go with there for that infrastructure? So if we, if we look at um, infrastructure that we're going to use, and we, we classify this as passive infrastructure. So poles and ducts. Um, we look at Aircom have a significant uh, infrastructure in terms of poles mm. and ducts. One point two million poles, fourteen thousand kilometers worth of underground network. We will also use ESBs uh, infrastructure as well. We will use the uh, metropolitan area networks, ENETs, um, mm-hmm. uh, concession um, metropolitan area network. So there's a lot of passive infrastructure that we're going to use. Mm-hmm. We will look to leverage that infrastructure. We obviously have to make sure that it's fit for a purpose. It's it's repaired. It's ready to go. We will put our cables on it and we will rent that infrastructure for the 25 years. Now, in, in doing our due diligence, obviously we've been three years in a procurement process. We've analyzed all of these infrastructure assets what we believe is the most optimal route, the risks associated with, the costs associated, the opportunity of potentially building additional network mm. ourselves. And we've come up with what we believe is the op- most optimal optimal solution. However, as we go on throughout the build phase, we will be doing low-level detailed design. So we may choose to use ESB poles in scenarios where it's more efficient or more cost-effective. Mm. We may choose to put up our own poles, whether it be on, on roads or across farms, wherever it's more cost-effective or, or more efficient. And so all of that detail we will get into as soon as we sign the contract around low-level right. design. We've done a significant level of design to date, which has come, to, which has brought together mm-hmm. our assessment in terms of the number of poles and the number of uh, kilometres of, of underground duct. And that's all fed into the financial model and the cost of the project that we have today. And one of the reasons I ask is there's a lot of talk about the network and who owns the network at the end of the 25-35-year uh, deal. But there hasn't really been an awful lot of clarity as to what the network is or will be. So what you're kind of saying, if uh, most of the physical infrastructure, such as poles or ducts, if they're owned by somebody else and you're essentially leasing them or renting them, yep. what is what is it that the network will be uh, that NBI will inherit after 25 years? So NBI, and I think, I think this, is, this is an important point, mm. NBI is building the actual fiber cable, yep. okay? And what's important here is it's, it's the obligation is on NBI to ensure that we have future-proofed the network. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, we've gone through a process where there's been, you know, 20, 30 advisors on the department side and equally a lot of team, 20, 30 technical team on our side mm-hmm. doing the design to ensure that we have absolutely future-proofed it. 
If we don't, and, and I'll give you an example about future-proofing, we've set a, a target plan for future-proofing in terms of service over the 25 years. We are equally benchmarked against services that are available in urban areas. Oh, yeah, so, and I'm, I'm going to come and, to that because that's an important point. The, and the, the, sorry, the reason why yeah. I want to make this point is because when we talk about the fibre cable and what we own, we not only own an asset, we also own, own an obligation or a liability, right? Yeah. And it's important that when we build that fibre network that it is future-proofed. If the benchmark products in urban areas increase in terms of bandwidth or service, mm. right? And you have to match it. We have to match yeah. it. Okay. Now we take on that. We take on that that responsibility, mm. and in terms of the asset we own in return is the fiber cable sitting on top of the poles. Okay. So and in the ducts. for example, after twenty five years, what you're saying is you own the fiber cable. That's your the guts of your network. Now, supposing um, air decides to go a different direction, and don't ask me why they would do this, but supposing wild hypothesis that they said we don't want to work with uh, this company anymore how does that work because your cables are now going via their telephone poles so there's an umbilical connection between the two so your network is kind of dependent on air's poles and air now air is a regulated entity has a yep. regulated prices so Comrade has a part to play in all of this as well yes. and most people will know that but just when we think about this network there's a lot of discussion particularly in the media about the network what the state mm. may be for going I'm trying to pin down what it is that actually will be there that either NBI or what may have been the state had they gone a different direction would actually own and you're saying it's actually just the for sim to simplify it it's the physical cable that runs along the telephone poles. Yes, and, and I think when you look at Air or, or ESB, I mean, they're regulated entities. So their access to their infrastructure mm. is on, uh, there's, there's product descriptions, there's pricing, there's there's service level agreements that they have to meet. And the regulator is there to, to, to enforce mm. those products, those so prices and those penalties. It. So they, they can't simply mm. pull it. Uh, but I would say, I mean, our engagement with AIR has been positive. I mean, we, we've gone through a number of contract iterations with AIR around access to that infrastructure for the 25 years and beyond. Um, and we've gone through the Make Ready Plan, you know, how they're got, with the team they're going to put in place, the major infrastructure program team, how they're going to put in place in terms of making sure the poles are, are fit for purpose, poles that need to be replaced, mm -hmm. poles that need to be, you know, stood upright. Some of these poles are, are, are leaning. The ducts that are blocked, I mean, obviously some of this duct network mm. is in the ground for over 30, 40 years. Mm -hmm. All of that needs to be repaired and made ready. We have a plan with AIR in terms of how we're going to deal with that. And we have a contract in terms of the make ready plan, the, the repair and maintenance and the pricing schedule. But the pricing schedule is largely in terms of the regulated price. So leave aside the pricing and leave aside the maintenance, um, roughly of the infrastructure that you need to use, how much of it needs to be upgraded or fixed up before you can use it? Air would have an agreement with, with Comreg today in terms of the likely repair mm. um, or replacement of uh, passive infrastructure, the poles and the ducts throughout their, throughout their net network nationally. They, they certainly are well experienced at this point based on the 300k rollout what the likely replacement of poles and repair of ducts looks like. Mm. So that, that's a, that's a, a, a re, this is where the regulated price comes from. Comreg look at Aircom's replacement costs on, on an annual basis and they justify what is the appropriate price mm -hmm. for renting a pole. And obviously the cost of renting a pole is dependent on the number of cables that sit on that pole. So it, it, it's not simply 
um, a choice of, well, we're only going to replace a certain number of poles. Mm. It's about the pole being fit for purpose. And that's something we, 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 the process of managing that with air, we have already gone through this process. We've, we've completed a proof of concept and we've gone through this in terms of the program rollout, how we're going to work together, how our teams and their teams are going to work together in terms of De- defining what poles need to be replaced or repaired. But you must have an idea, like how many poles need to be repaired. Th- there's there's an there's an estimate, right. um, you know. I, I th- but I think we we we've put an estimate into our model. Uh, you know, it's something that will be agreed before financial close mm-hmm. in terms of the actual likely rollout per annum of poles to be replaced. And in terms of the general uh, um, terms of engagement with air. There was a standoff where Air was saying, if you want access to our infrastructure as a regulated price, that's the price you're going to pay. Is that the price you're going to pay? We will pay the regulated okay. price today. Okay. Correct. Because at the time, I remember, I don't want to look back over it, there was a sort of a standoff uh, and the conclusion more or less was, look, if we pay the regulated price, this thing will probably be a little bit more expensive, but it actually will probably fall back more on the state and the taxpayer. Um, and maybe that's what's happened. Um, because... Uh, certainly, there. I was talking to the chief executive of, of Air um, about this in the in the last few hours, and actually many other things, not just this. And she pretty much confirmed uh, that the, the the figure of close to a billion uh, of the three billion is 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 going to be roughly what's on the table for them in a regulated way, with a maximum amount of how much they can take from it, eight percent, just mm. over eight percent. Nevertheless, that kind of foreseeable, consistent income over the next 25 years, I mean, that's pretty good for air. You know, that's not a bad return for air, no matter how they decide to characterize it. I, I think you've got to look, and, and, and I appreciate these are big numbers. Yeah. And when you present them, you know, in the manner of a billion euro goes to air, mm. you know, it, it seemed like as if they'd just gotten a check. I mean, there's a lot of work that air have to do in terms of making sure that the poles are fit for purpose, mm-hmm. replaced. Mm-hmm. The ducts are repaired or replaced. So there's a, there's, a, there's a lot of make ready work that they have to do before they ever get any of that revenue. Mm-hmm. And the same would apply, I suppose, around the around around the subsidy. There's a question around the size of the scope subsidy and and what what our risks are around around building the network. Mm-hmm. You know, National Bob and Ireland and our shareholders are the ones who are building the network and taking the risks up front. We have to deliver significant milestones before we can ever claim subsidies. And the same applies with air. So air are contributing capital day Mm. one to make these poles fit for purpose. The revenue is a regulated revenue, right? And and arguably it could be said that it's it's quite a low revenue, but it's a 25 year infrastructure uh, uh, revenue model. So all of this has been worked out with the regulator. Um, Aircom have a lot of work to do before they ever see that revenue and they have to deliver on their service level agreements. So mm. if a pole falls over, they have to make sure that they have the teams available to replace that pole, all within a certain uh, time frame. So all of that is is a well-proven uh, and, and documented mm-hmm. process. Mm-hmm. So I, I, it's not a case of they get a check regardless of doing anything. They have a lot of work to do here as well. Oh, no, that, that's a point well taken. It's just that presuming that Air is a professional company and that it will do that and meet those um, arrangements, that is a foreseeable form of likely income because there's a state subsidy involved. I mean, Air has just raised, uh, I think they went back to the debt markets for 400 million or so. It, it, you know, th- it makes them a better bet in the long term when they have that kind of recurring coming in. But t- speaking about Air putting up capital up front, one of the other issues is that has been commented upon is 
with regard to the state front loading its subsidy costs in the first 10 years, there is an air of mystery as to how much maybe NBI or the NDI, uh, how much capital it might be putting up or whether it is anything like what the state is, is putting up. I mean, can you give us any kind of uh, kind of clarification there as to, to where that sits? So, so to start, um, you've got to look at the overall life of the project. Um, you've got to look at what's the cost, there's a cost of, passing homes, mm. there's a cost of connecting homes, but there's also a life cost of, of the network. And the overall life cost, if I take out some of the numbers that were talked about uh, yesterday, disclosed yesterday, 2.97 billion. Mm. In the 2.97 billion, if we take away VAT and contingency, and, and particularly the contingency, and we say, okay, what's the subsidy ask that, that, that as, a, as a bidder, mm. we're saying is the gap that needs mm. to be met by the state? we estimated around 2.1 billion, okay? So you then say, well, what's the life cost of the network? It's closer to 5 billion. So over 25 years, what's the operational cost? What are all the overheads? What are all, what's the revenue look like? So the source of funds Mm -hmm. is close to 5 billion. Now, the subsidy from the state is capped. So it's a maximum number. Mm -hmm. The cost to the shareholders in terms of whether it be equity, working capital, uh, performance bonds, and revenue is uncapped. Mm. So we have to make up, make sure that we deliver the network. So up front, we're building the network. We're taking the risk. Okay, it's only upon delivering on key milestones, mm-hmm. passing premises, connecting premises, actual capital cost contributed, do we receive subsidy. Mm. And then the long term, we're, so we're taking construction risk. Mm. And then the long term, if the revenue doesn't turn up, our shareholders have to put additional capital in. So, uh, it, so, so I'm, in, I'm not trying to avoid no, the no, question. No. In, but, in very but I, simple layman's terms, what you're saying is if there's an estimate that the lifetime cost for the network is five billion, and if there is a maximum, uh, if there's an initial subsidy ask of 2.1 billion and there's contingency and VAT, what you're saying is through revenue from the services uh, in the homes and businesses and your own uh, capital requirements, the shortfall there that you guys are more or less responsible for gathering is somewhere between two and three billion. That's Co- the, correct, yeah, and obviously yeah. we obviously revenue forms a part of that. Yeah. So, but we're we're on risk during that period. That's your part to deliver to deliver yeah. the revenue. So, and and, and I would bring br- I would probably bring us around to the discussion as to take up and and there's been you know questions that there isn't demand you know and, or the demand is going yeah. to be low. Certainly, the numbers that are, that that we're hearing today in the media between the 14 to 20%, mm. that is typical of a year one take-up demand. Right. However, in the long term, and, and, and some, of the, some of the statements are within five years, the long term, I mean 15 to 20 years, we're very comfortable that the take-up is going to be 80%. Mm. You know, I think you've covered this before um, on previous shows. Mm-hmm. As time goes on, you know, individuals in their, in their 40s or 50s will move back to r- rural parts where they grew up, they will use the broadband or they will want broadband. There's businesses today that are growing up in rural Ireland, mm-hmm. software businesses, and they're competing on a national, an international scale. Mm-hmm. They're trying to bring students back to those regions. The Northwest, for example, 300,000 third level students mm-hmm. have all, have, uh, over the last 10 years, have, been, uh, have gone to urban areas or other cities. There's an opportunity for people to go back to where they grew up and get that better work-life balance. And I suppose if you look at travel and, and, and all the other benefits, um, e-learning, uh, remote working, 
automated driving, so many additional benefits that are unmeasurable. Mm. Um, so I, 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 in terms of the revenue opportunities, we see there's real, real opportunity that we drive the demand here in the long term. But we're very comfortable with the commitments that we've put into the into our model and, and in, in the gap funding that we've asked the state to step up to, which is the 2.1 billion. Now, the, the contract, as I understand, will be published all 1,500 pages of it, uh, if and when it's signed uh, in, in a couple of months' time. Um, and at that point, there'll probably be a different discussion as maybe analysis, proper analysis over who's behind the company and wh uh, what's uh, what's driving that. Um, Dave McCourt, who is uh, the... the driving figure behind Granahan McCourt has publicly said many times that um, uh, his partner, uh, Walter Scott, his family uh, has been a part uh, of um, this consortium. I'm assuming when all of this comes out, it'll be roughly the way David has guided it up to now, is it? Absolutely. And I think, um, you know, there's, there's a statement that David is a US investor. I think that would be equivalent of calling um, Michael O'Leary an airline investor. You know, David's experience has be, has been building networks across the US and Central America, and certainly in the UK and Europe. So when when you, when we talk about our team, and I've worked with David and Walter for the last five years, mm -hmm. they acquired a business that, that that I was a shareholder and owner in called Airspeed Telecom. Airspeed, yeah. I, I understand um, the experience behind uh, Granham McCourt and Walter Scott, and in terms of building out networks on a national basis but not only Walter and David's experience I mean they have they, they, they've built significant networks in the US level three being one of them you know managed managed and delivered 40 billion dollars in in true network build but as a team most of our team is Irish based and, and the experience we have within our team is engineers who have built out aircom CXO levels mm. so CTO XCFO and um, teams that have built fiber across Europe, across um, Central America. It's quite a vast team, 24 national networks. Our team have been responsible for project managing, financing, engineering and operating. Mm. So uh, one, thing we, one thing we will disclose over the coming meek, weeks is who are our team? What experience have we got? And, and that detail we've gone through through exhaustive lengths mm -hmm. with the department over the last three years. We would not be sitting here today if that proven capability was not demonstrated. Mm -hmm. And certainly we've gone through this in numerous occasions. We've sat in numerous presentations and we've gone through our program plan. Part of the objection or the objective to delivering uh, the contract is that we sign up to obligations. Clear, clear demonstrable uh, procedures of how we're going to design and build this network. Every premise with an air code will be in our rollout plan. We have to achieve the milestones. If we don't, there's associated penalties. We're very comfortable with delivering on that plan and we have the right team, the best people that we believe associated with our team. Okay, I'm going to talk to you about uh, wireless in a second. I just wanted to take a quick break to, again, tell you, the listener, that the Big Tech Podcast is brought to you uh, by Magnet Networks, which connects business virtually anywhere in Ireland. We thank them uh, for their support. And you are listening to the voice of Peter Hendrick, who's the chief executive of National Broadband Ireland, which is the entity that has uh, just achieved preferred bidder status for the government's national broadband plan process. And my name is Adrian Weckler. Peter, I just wanted to ask you about the last 10 and 20 percent. A lot of the commentary has been around the complexity and the cost of connecting that last 
trash of maybe call them 100,000 homes. You might tell me a smaller or a bigger figure. And a lot of people might have thought that a wireless option was a logical option for that. But this contract is for fiber to you know 98% of premises, including that last 100,000. Can you talk me through that a bit? I would say, obviously, we started out the process 2015 and um, the, the product, it all started out, what's the what's the service we're going to deliver? Mm. So put, put technology aside for a minute. We have to deliver 30 megabits per second. And, and the three bidders, when you take ourselves, uh, the Granham Court-led bid, you take Air and you mm. take Syro, we all went into this looking at, okay, what's the most optimal solution in terms of, and particularly looking at it over 25 years, We've got to meet the we've got to meet the day one requirements of thirty megabits per second, and then we've got to meet the the future bandwidth requirements that are going to be mapped against urban areas. So you've got to consider what do we think the broadband services are going to look like in urban areas. Mm. So we all went into this looking at what's the best technology here. How can we do this? How can we meet the obligations of the contract? And twenty five years was the right time frame. Okay, and, and and that's important, and I'll tell you why. When we got down to looking at the last twenty percent, of course it became a significant number of the overall cost, particularly of passing, because you're further away from, the, the, the distance between homes is further, therefore you're putting more fibre in, you're using more poles. Okay? Yeah, for someone who's not au fait with the telecoms industry, which is 90% of us, let's 99% of us, let's be honest, can you explain in simple English, physically, what you have to do to connect a remote one-off premises? to a fiber uh, to to pass them with fiber. Yeah, so so obviously the, there's a, there's a fiber cable passing the home or, or or within a close distance of the home and we're using typically po- on a telephone poles, pole. On, on a telephone pole. Yeah. So for anybody living in rural Ireland, if you look out your window today and you see a pole within the next 5 to 7 years you will see a fiber cable on it. Right. Okay. Now, with a different color, it'll be it'll be the same color as the existing cables. Black. It'll be black. And um, obviously, we'll have certain protection in it so that cables don't get damaged in terms of storms mm. or, or or anything else. But when we look back at the design and the decision made by all three bidders over twenty five years to meet the obligations of the of the first product, mm. thirty megabits per second. We could have looked at wireless, mm-hmm. okay, and then we say, okay, for the last for the last twenty percent, which are being viewed as not value for money or the most mm-hmm. expensive, how do we how do we future proof them, and how do we make sure they get an equal service to anybody else in the country? And we we we, we don't treat them any different, but we look at alternative technologies, and we say, okay, five G is going to last a certain period of time because we're going to map them against other services in urban areas. Then there's a requirement to upgrade that network. And it's not just about upgrading the equipment on the towers or the poles. It's the equipment on the customer site. So we're having to go out now and replace the antenna on the customer site. Mm. Maybe five years time. And then 6G then. So we've deployed 6G and we're delivering maybe a couple of hundred megabits per second and we're matching what's available in urban areas. Then you've got to deploy 7G maybe in year 14 or 15 and then possibly 8G by year 20. When we looked at this over the life of the 25 years, there was a requirement to build thousands of base station towers, okay? So it wasn't just a matter of, oh, well, we can just use wireless. It was the infrastructure behind it. Mm. And when I talk about passive infrastructure, I'm talking about poles and ducts, but equally towers. So building more towers. And towers, you have you have to have height. It's not a case of we're just going to attach it to a pole. You have to be on a hilltop or on a building, and you have to build height. 
because we're trying to guarantee a service. We're trying to guarantee a service level agreement. So it's not simply good enough to just say, but it works at 100 megabits per second today. It needs to work at 100 megabits per second all of the time, regardless of the weather, regardless of the time of the year in terms of trees or, or, or line of sight blockage. Yeah, there was so, a Comreg's uh, report. It, it wasn't Comreg's report. I think it was called by New Frontiers. Comreg commissioned this report to look at uh, wireless as an option. And I think one of the key recommendations that came back wa with was that if 5G or fixed wireless was to be considered an alternative, it would need about another 6,000 masts uh, around the country and even then um, that would still not match the quality you'd currently get from fiber correct uh, we looked at that um, we looked at in, in order to give real real reliable uh, equivalent service mm. right we looked at probably three to four times that number of towers wow. right okay. because you're 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 you need to be closer to the to the to the yeah. business to guarantee the service level agreement mm. okay now when we and it wasn't just it wasn't just our bid, Cyro and Air equally did the same yeah. exercise over two years. Mm. We all went through this process. We spent we spent months. We have and, and when I look at the team we have, we have teams the ex CTO of Air, we have ex CTO of Digicel, we have teams who have decades of experience in designing and building wireless networks. Mm -hmm. And the end result was over twenty five years, actually it could cost more to deliver wireless mm. to the last twenty percent. And the justification, therefore, was it has to be an almost all fibre network. So, but the, one of the main things you're saying here, if I'm hearing you correctly, is that wireless might have been an option if the terms of the future proofing were a little bit more liberal. But because there is a requirement on you to match whatever, you know, a city fibre user has in future, and that you have to match that uh, um, in a rural context, that it's just simpler to use fiber uh, to yeah, match that. I, I, you know, two things. You could say, well, we're only going to solve the problem for a minimum period of time, five years or seven years. We're not going to commit to any future proofing. Mm. Okay, so you're going to be stuck on this service. I, I think that would be a mistake. And I think the government were very were, were right to say, you know what, we're going to do it all. We're not going to leave the 20% behind mm. because I think in, in five or seven years' time, they would be back at the drawing board again. Well, politically, they probably couldn't anyway. That's a different question, I know. But yeah. uh, how do you stand up, whether you're close to an election or not, and tell 100,000 of the 540,000, um, sorry, but you guys aren't going to get this service? Um, I, don't, I, I don't think anybody would. I don't think any yeah. any uh, politician out there today would say, we're going to treat, we're going to treat you differently because of where you live. Mm. So if you look at... Um, it's quite a brave decision, by It would the way. be a very brave decision. But, you, but I think if you said, okay, we're going to give you a service, but it, but, but it may not be future-proofed, mm. I think we'll be back at the drawing board again in five or seven years' time. And then the question is... That's typically what governments do, though. Well, well, well they, they do, but, but the cost in the, long in the long term we know is going to be more. Yeah. Right. And meanwhile, we're, we're putting up terrors all across the countryside. Yeah. I, what I was going to say is a brave decision for them to apply... Um, the, the National Broadband Plan to future built air code address houses in uh, one-off houses as well. I mean, th there would be, like a, the planning lobby, for example, would say with a lot of justification, look, we're rewarding bad planning here. If we uh, give anybody who builds, you know, a bungalow out in the middle of nowhere because their family happens to own uh, that property and they get planning permission, they build a bungalow there. We're just rewarding them if they if we give them all the mod cons that they get in a city's uh, at, at 
maybe at environmental cost. So it is it is a kind of a brave decision to to future uh, proof those uh, premises as well. I'm sure you've done the modeling as to how many uh, of those homes will be built. Maybe it'll be 50,000, maybe it'll be 100,000. I don't know. But that, you know, that, that did, I, I was a little bit surprised at that. Yeah, I suppose I would look and there's a lot of there's a lot of um, talk about no one else in the world is doing this. Mm. If you look at uh, the UK, um, the the DCMS, the Department of Media, Culture and Sport, right? Digital Media, uh, Culture and Sport, they've committed to full fibre, right? Mm. And their plan is by 2033, they're going to have full fibre. And they've gone, they're, they're now saying it's rural first. Okay, because they see they've they've delivered BD UK, which mm. right now is not meeting the requirements in terms of bandwidth, bandwidth today that consumers are using, and they know it won't meet the requirements of the future. They they realise that full fibre is the only way to go. Mm. So their plan, and it's quite a well documented ninety page plan that was issued last last July, July of twenty eighteen. They're saying hundred percent full fibre by 2033. And by 2027, they want to see 70% 5G. Now, the reason why they say 5G is because it's to, to get 5G and, and fibre are not competing with one another. There's different services, different applications, people on, on the move, uh, connected devices, automated uh, vehicles. There's so many different applications where 5G is important. Smart farming. There's so, you know, all of the connected devices and all the applications we're going to use requires fibre to the premise and access to 5G. So they have to be cohesive. And I think the brave thing about um, our Department of Communi Communications and the government here is actually, to a certain degree, they, they, they're leaders. Um, the UK are following. In other countries like Poland, Poland is very clear. They're delivering fibre. Italy, fibre. I, I think if you, if you look at where it's headed, the future's headed, every economy is going to go full fibre mm. in, the, in the fullness of time. Um, just in general, um, what do you think is going to happen? How much work do you have to do before this uh, contract is signed? We have a significant element of the contract completed, uh, as, um, as, as has been told, 1,500 pages of the contract. Today, our focus is on getting all the contractors in place in terms of the contracts, the supply chain. There's a lot of logistics to set up. We've got to order a significant number of poles, you know, tens of thousands of kilometers of fiber. There's, 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 a, there's an element of preparing all those supply chains. So preferred bidder allows you to do that. Well, preferred bidder, we have, I mean, before obviously we were awarded preferred bidder, there's a, what we call a conditions precedent. So there's, there's actions upon us now that we must complete and have ready before the contract is signed. Mm. So it's quite an, quite an amount of work. We don't just go away now and wait for lawyers to sign a contract. There's a lot of work that our team of 40 people around Marion Square are focused on getting um, getting through so that we, over the coming months, we're ready to sign all of these contracts and projects are ready to kick off from the beginning. Are there enough within Ireland, enough contractors, enough firms, enough uh, skilled labour to do this? I suppose w w to, to look at all the specialist firms that we're using, um, there is. Um, we're looking at some of the biggest firms. Some of them are working in Ireland and in the UK. We would have over 40 different contracting firms uh, almost 2,000 people we will employ in this project over the seven years. And then obviously there's a continuous employment in terms of connecting, operating and maintaining the network mm. over the next 25 years. All of the contractors we have been engaged with for the last two years around this process, their processes, their costs, and um, you know their supply chain, 
health and safety, um, program management, planning, mm. a lot of detail we have documented in order to be able to present a credible solution. Do you think you will have multiple retailers from an early stage using the network? Again, in terms of engagement during the procurement, we've met with all of the retail operators. Mm. We think over time we would see possibly 60 or 70 retail operators. Mm. And they will, they will vary from small regional operators to the large um, typical brand or well-known yeah. operators. And I think how, how, how they differentiate their services may be on TV or, or, or voice services or mobile packages. But equally, I think what, what's probably important here, we're going to bring the fiber into the home. Mm. What's important as a differentiator for operators is what they do in the home. And, and I think we all know it's, a, it's no longer about plugging devices in in the home. It's about well, what's the Wi-Fi set up in the home and, and what services are being offered uh, to the business or the consumer. And that's where retail operators will compete against uh, one another. Price, bandwidths, and obviously the service they offer in terms of the actual first connection, but over the life of their contracts. 150 megabyte service. I've, do we know yet how much roughly that'll cost? I suppose the best way of describing it is we're going to we're going to match what is in the right. uh, non-intervention area, so yeah. urban areas. So if you look at Air, Vodafone, um, or any of the or any of the regional uh, operators, the price should be matching what they're offering in, in in urban areas. So when I'm asked, I usually say I think it'll cost about thirty-five, forty euro. Um, although thirty-five. Yeah, I think that you think you get that by that from Virgin, roughly. Yeah, correct. I mean, yeah. ultimately, if you look at Vodafone or Sky, for example, yeah. they use Aircom's network. They buy a wholesale pro wholesale mm -hmm. product. We're so. offering the same wholesale price and product right. to those operators. So, so their retail price should apply. Yeah. Are there any challenges to building the network other than the stuff you've already talked about? Any like, are you going to run across any big farmers who say you can't build on my land or any, anything like that? Uh, look, this is this is a good news story, yeah. and we see that the demand for broadband is is a positive thing. And mm -hmm. um, we're, we're 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 bringing fiber cables down roads. And um, obviously, there may be circumstances where we want to go across farmers' fields. Mm -hmm. We'll have to make sure we go to appropriate way leaves, etc., for those circumstances. That's a big deal for it, big companies it, like Air. They'll tell you it, war stories. It, it it is if you're going across somebody's land, yeah. but obviously we're we're staying in the roads, and you know, again, it's a positive positive news story and we believe everybody wants to see this happen in rural Ireland. The electricity uh, comparison is made. There's a old clipping from the 50s or 60s, 40s I think that I found. Actually I didn't find it. Somebody else brought it to my attention but I've tweeted out a couple of times about how you know, local area says 35% doesn't want electricity or, or whatever. Um, I can see a, scenario, a situation where you're trying to run something down at Boreen and you know a resident or two says I don't really want that uh, uh, coming into into my place or coming down my road. But the point, if I'm correct, and correct me if I'm wrong, is you're saying, in general, as a principle, you're going to build the network that will pass these homes, the majority or all of them, whether or not they then decide to connect is kind of up to them. Correct. Yeah. Because we believe in the fullness of time, those premises will connect. Mm. Yeah, okay. And if they don't connect, part of your incentive is for them to connect as well as the, the home to be passed. So you, that's the way it's structured. Correct. And, and I suppose, it, look, th this is equivalent to rural electrification. If, if you go back and look at the demand stimulation activities 
um, when rural electrification was being rolled out, there was a, a van or, or, or a caravan going around the country with appliances in the back explaining to people what electricity could be used for. Mm. Okay, So people didn't understand. They, they figured, okay, we're going to use it for, for light. Mm. But when, when it was explained, the other opportunities, refrigeration or microwaves or whatever was available at the time, we have to do the same thing. So we are going out and doing what's called demand stimulation. We are going to engage with the community. We're going to do uh, regional um, roadshows. We're going to explain what our rollout plan is. Long, what gonna, what long demo, before what we start. What demos are you going to show? Obviously, we're going to have to show the benefits of e-learning, connected devices, Internet of Things, how people are going to interact, um, smart farming. There's so much positive news of what we know today. It's not just about, people th seem to think it's just about Netflix. Netflix is a byproduct. And it's fantastic. We all get the benefits of By it. By the way, if you isn't have it amazing that Netflix, a service that most people didn't use five or six years ago, Incredible. is now used as the benchmark or the metric for the generic indicator it, 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 for high-speed broadband. It, it, it's incredible. And, and like everything, you look at Google's announcement in terms of Stadia, in terms yeah, of gaming, yeah. right? Yeah. This is just one example. Can't get it if you don't have it. Is it 24 megs or something? It, 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 24 megs. Yeah. It, it, it's incredible. That's just one example. As soon as you move on to 8K and, and 16K or whatever whatever the future holds, mm -hmm. bandwidths go up. And and we're talking, about a, we're talking about building a standard here. And in Ireland, we are going to be leaders and we're talking about an infrastructure that has no bottlenecks. I mean, I, I go back, I look back to when we started out building telecoms networks, when we started Airspeed Telecom. We were paying 1,200 euros for one meg from a US carrier, of which then we were breaking up or, 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 or contending mm. to supply to customers. And, and the cost back then was incredible, but it was reserved for corporate customers. Now, the applications were email. You know, there, mm. there, there was very little applications. There was very little, you know, applications communicating with one another. It was... Um, it, it was you were reacting, you were sending information. There was no machine learning. There was no artificial intelligence. There was no communication between systems or, 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 or places. That's all changed. You know, if you look at today, we, we if we look at a gigabit, the price of a gigabit per second, the price has come down by in the last ten years is 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 incredible. Yeah. So I, I look at a gig as being today. It's a benchmark as as where we're headed. We're looking at a, a gigabit economy. Right, and, and across the entire country, you can order a gigabit. But the next step is 10 gigabits. The step after that is 25 gigabits, and then it'll be 100 gigabits. And I don't think we're that far away from that. When I look at 10 years ago in the business we were running, 10 megabits was seen as a huge customer. Yeah. We had customers who were paying us 40,000 euros a year for 10 megabits 10 years ago. So we, you know, if, if you look at the comparisons, but equally it's the use usage and the, the demand and the price of technology and the price of running businesses, they've all come down. So therefore, we can add all these additional bandwidths and services to customers. Okay, well, Peter Hendrick, Chief Executive of uh, National Broadband Ireland, thank you very much for coming into studio today. And a final word of thanks to Magnet Networks, which connects businesses virtually anywhere in Ireland. And thanks to Magnet for their support of The Big Tech Show as a podcast. That's all we have time for. This week, from me, Adrian Wackler, the tech editor of the Irish and Sunday Independent, I'll talk to you at the same time next week. Bye-bye. The Big Tech Podcast, in proud association with Magnet Networks, connecting businesses virtually anywhere in Ireland.